Welcome to Haber Bros, a podcast for historic cross-centered Christians. We seek to provide ancient answers to a culture that's forgotten the questions. I'm Kirk Haberman, a church musician, and this is my brother Chris, a priest. Chris, how are you? I'm doing well today. I'm doing well. We've got some tree trimming going on in our backyard, which is uh, a great, I, I'm just rife with illustrations for this whole, uh, I am the vine and you are the branches and pruning of, of vines and, <laughs> and horticultural analogies. Uh, I'm set. Is this the tree from whence poured forth the swarm of bees that tried to kill me several times? No. Not that tree. Not right. that tree, no. Which tree? Oh, well, as you know, we have many trees yes. in our yard. You uh, and the tree- it's a lovely Arboretum. Yeah, the tree that you're referring to is at the back of our property. We have these giant old maples, and I don't know what uh, sort of maple it is, but they are huge trees, and they must be very old. And, and the unfortunate thing about that is that uh, in 2013, we had a storm of the century ice storm that uh, took down uh, big parts of, uh, I mean, we, we used to have I mean, these trees are what, 40 feet tall, 50 feet? I would say they're huge. Yeah, and, 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 this, and the back of my property is extremely, extremely wide. It's, it's, it's like a trapezoid, not trapezoid. Uh, it's this odd-shaped yard where it's really, really wide <laughs> at the back. And, um, you know, there are all these trees that, that – Parallelogram. Nah. Yeah. Yeah. Not a parallelogram, but uh, be- because because the the sides aren't parallel, so yeah, right quality. But anyway, there's here. there's a lot of there's a lot of very tall trees at the back of our property, and like like slowly over the years, um, ice storms or wind takes down big chunks. So it's 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 not what it once was, but they are huge trees, and they are not mine. Interestingly, uh, and. Uh, so they're not my responsibility to trim uh, because they're like a foot behind the the back of my property, uh, and and we also have a power line. So usually uh, it's the power company that that uh, trims them. Uh, but uh, I haven't counted the other trees. There's at least eight other trees that they are trimming that that are mine. I I am not excited about seeing the bill for this, but it's it's necessary. <laughs> do you do you remember how I got how I got stung? Chasing a basketball. We were playing yeah. basketball, right? And you've got those like little cedar trees that uh, surround yeah. your basketball court. And, uh, you know, when you're trying to save a ball um, from going out of bounds and you kind of leap into the cedar trees and like the cedar branches kind of scratch you. Um, are they cedar? Or are they juniper? Something like that. Something like, like scrubby that. pine thingies. And uh, I thought I thought that uh, the stupid tree had gotten me again. 
And then like it kept hurting and it hurt even more and more. And then I look down and I see this thing angrily like um, attached to you. Yeah. my calf. And I'm like, ah, and uh, yeah, evidently that, that tree had a, had a bit. And did I, did I get stung then twice at your house? Probably. The Kirk stinging episode. Yeah. I, I mean, poor Kirk, Kirk, I mean, has been stung so much recently <laughs> that, I mean, you've started to, to have genuine reactions to, to the yeah. stings. Yeah. Well, and, and so th- that is kind of part of it is that this, these trees are old and like some of the trunks are a little bit hollowed out. And so, and, and we're up against a, a field, even though we're in the middle of a city, uh, as the city has expanded um, into the fields, there are kind of holdouts. There are farmer holdouts who haven't sold. And so we have this beautiful, beautiful property um, in the city with trees and a field behind it. And that's a great place for, for, for wasps or hornets or whatever they are to live. And especially when there's this hollowed out tree. So I had a, a, exterminator come and take care of them but i had to call them back and and get them to come back and the guy was like uh unless we like fill in these crevices and i was like uh okay do that and so he took i think just like (laughs) this foaming insulation i think and just went to town inside these kind of hollows of the tree because he's like i can kill them but they're gonna come back as long as there are there's this great habitat for them so we've been we've been good since then that's good. That's good. So which, which trees are being uh, trimmed today then? So we have the, the beautiful flowering apple tree in the middle of our love yard. That mm-hmm. Love that. Yep. And the, the ones on the side of the house uh, that, that have just, they, they, they've grown a lot. Uh, and in 2013, we didn't get them trimmed quite as well as we ought to have. For some reason, I had in my mind after the ice storm that, that these branches would bounce back. But I mean, once those fibers or wood uh, are broken once there's this weight of ice on them and they, they're once they're droopy they don't perk back up and start growing upward mm-hmm. so they, they look very sad they're like droopy branches that, uh, that they need to be trimmed on the sides of the house uh, that we have uh during during windy times the branches rub up against our siding which isn't good and then in the front of the house that tree needs to be trimmed seriously it's just growing out over the house uh it droops down i've, I've had to trim the smaller branches because those rub against the shingles um, but but it needs a lot of stuff taken off. Yeah. So it's interesting. I've been contemplating. I've been starting to have. Uh, um, I've been contemplating buying a chainsaw. I've been starting to have chainsaw envy. I'm starting to notice chainsaws everywhere, because those uh, those three giant uh, pine trees uh, marking the back boundary of my property. Um, they they have had. I've done nothing to them, um, other than like lop off stuff with handheld things. Mm. Um, in the last 10 years and they just need, they, they need some tending to. And, uh, I'm, I, I think I'm starting to be a bad neighbor, some <laughs> of my neighbors because it's affecting them. Um, so I, 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 I hate, uh, I hate trimming trees. Um, every time I see trees being trimmed, I feel sorry. And I know we'll get to this, uh, in the, in the gospel reading, but, but actually I've been told by, by people who are good with plants that, um, the plants love trimming. They mm-hmm. love trimming. Absolutely. Um, and growth trimming, trimming produces oftentimes growth. But when you see it, when you see someone being really aggressive with a tree, um, I, I immediately, like, I, I think of like my arm being chopped off or something. And that, <laughs> but that's obviously not what's happening. Well, um, what, what, what you want is not a chainsaw, Kirk. You want a pole saw. Oh, that would be, that would be yeah. super fun. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, because chainsaw would also be really fun as well. You, you shouldn't I mean, be climbing. Be 
you should not be climbing ladders with chainsaws. I, I'm told that's a no-no. <laughs> and but so if you want to get really anywhere above what you can reach, you want a pole saw. Okay. All right. That's what I want. Um, to, today is uh, is Thursday. I'm very excited for Saturday. Saturday morning, 9:30 a.m. Eastern, 8:30 a.m. Central. Christopher is uh, the resumption of the Bundesliga. Mm. <laughs> and I shared with I, you after after last week's episode when we we chose at random for no reason whatsoever. And we each chose a, a team to follow, a, a club, a side to follow. I've got to learn the lingo, I guess. Um, you chose Dortmund, mm-hmm. and I chose Leipzig, and Dad chose Dusseldorf, and you and I both chose well, <laughs> and uh, and Dad chose poorly. <laughs> what, movie, what movie is that from? He chose poorly. That's uh, that's um not Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, not Temple of Doom. It's the third one. Oh, um, uh, Last Crusade. Yeah, the Last Crusade. Um, that's the knight that's guarding the um okay, the Holy okay. Grail. Okay, yeah. Um, do you remember he uh, he chooses like this bejeweled, glittery mm-hmm. chalice. And he says, "Ah, oh, a cup fit for the Son of God," or something like that. And he drinks from it, and he like has the, the hideous transformation. And the knight just says, "He chose poorly." Which, which is a mix of uh, that movie. Those movies are a good mix of of bad theology and good theology. The bad theology is that like they're that that the Nazis could somehow wield this power of God <laughs> apart from the will of God, right? That the Ark of the Covenant that they could just use to their own means. Like God would be like, "Well, I guess you got the Ark, you know. I guess <laughs> yeah, I guess I have to, you know I have to be a Nazi." <laughs> Yeah, both the first and the third movie have have the identical premise, which is if you can acquire, if as an evil regime, an, an obviously satanic regime, if you can acquire holy vessels, you can somehow channel the will of God, and God will be like a, a, a I don't know, like a, a dog with a shock collar on that'll be just kind of forced to stay in this tiny yard and do what you want it to do or something. I don't know. Yeah, really. Yeah, funny. but yes, but the idea, but the idea of. The the idea of of uh, of this uh, holy grail, of course, uh, this there's there's no power in the uh, in this grail itself, but but the idea of of a cup fit for a king, the the, the king that we worship, um, humbled himself by becoming uh, a man. Um, it, and uh, it just reminds me of this how Paul writes of this so beautifully in Philippians to have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it continues quite well, but the the first part talks about just the humility. And yeah, of course, he would not have a bejeweled chalice. He would have a a humble uh, uh, carpenter's chalice, yeah. Yeah, so that that is what Hollywood gets right there, um, because mm-hmm. of all the yeah. challenges that are laid out for him to choose from. It's just the simple clay thing that you know, kind of uh, working class Jews would have had in first century Palestine, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So Dad chose poorly. He chose, chose Dusseldorf. You and I chose well. So it's interesting. Dortmund uh, having a good year. Uh, I think they're in the top three or top five. Um, your choice and my choice, Leipzig, um, has an an interesting 
history. So um, they are a, a Johnny come lately that, that I, I read is hated by everyone. And so the reason is this, uh, the Bundesliga, Germ Germany is uh, one of the wealthiest countries in Europe, and yet they don't have uh, one of the wealthiest soccer leagues. Um, for example, Spain and, uh, and Italy, who have uh, lower per capita incomes, have, have um, clubs, soccer clubs that, that, that can lure free agents with far greater salaries. Um, and, and obviously, England's Premier League um, has enormous salaries. Uh, and, and so um, why, why is it that Germany kind of has this, this, this smaller league? Well, there's a reason why. There's this 50 plus one rule in the Bundesliga. And that means that uh, private and corporate ownership can only be 49% of um, uh, owners of, of a club. So a club has to be owned by 50% plus one um, public ownership of just individuals, just local citizens buying, buying in. And, uh, and so uh, Leipzig, uh, there, there, are, there are a couple clubs that are uh, exceptions to this. One is Bayer Leverkusen, which Leverkusen incidentally was a town that was built by Volkswagen to, to house its... Um, to house uh, its employees in like the early part of the 20th century. So it's interesting. That's like the Dearborn, Michigan of, of Germany. Um, but, but Leipzig was this up until 2009, it wasn't even um, RC Leipzig. It was this, uh, I've, I've lost it now. I'd, I'd read about it. It was this uh, like third rate, fourth rate, fifth, it was a fifth tier team, Mark Ronstadt. <laughs> and uh, they were bought by Red Bull and Red Bull rebranded it. Um, as RB Leipzig, and uh, they don't f follow the official rule, the 50 plus one rule. So um, Leipzig is is owned by, is mostly like corporate owners. And so like Germany just hates them. <laughs> so I have this hated corporate team, evidently, who's great because they have lots of corporate money sloshing around that they can throw at, throw at free agents. How, how are they able to skirt those rules? Uh, unclear. Um, <laughs> I read like one article. <laughs> so I'd have to take a little more. Okay. <laughs> Come on, give me the legal reasoning here. I, yeah, I'm, I fear we're we're shedding shedding listeners left and right here as they're waiting for us to get onto interesting stuff. But yeah, so 9.30, 9.30 uh, on Saturday Eastern, uh, my, my boys, RB Leipzig, plays Freiburg. Um, and uh, Dortmund, your boys, play uh, Schalke. Um, by the way, uh, you've Oh, won. I hate them. <laughs> I, I know, right? You've won four of the last five, and they haven't nice. had a win in their last five. It's been three losses okay. and two draws. Things look good for you. Um, Dad uh, plays one of the only teams that's worse than him. Dusseldorf plays Paderborn, um, which has four losses and a draw in their last five. So they think um, I, I was close to picking Paderborn because Paderborn is a is a great uh, German hymn tune. Mm. Do you know what we <laughs> sing? No, I don't mean to put you on the spot. Ye oh. servants of God. Ye servants of God, your master proclaim, and something abroad. Publish. Publish abroad. Publish abroad. Yes. Yes. His so that's Paderborn, um, which produces better hymn tunes than it does uh, soccer teams. So, yeah. <laughs> the other thing that's, uh, that's going on here is um, Daphne, our daughter, youngest of four children who just turned four, is turning into a quote machine. Um, she has just been so funny. So I sent you a video last night of a, of a fantastic 
Nerf gun fight in our backyard, which is fun until it's time to go inside and you tell the kids to pick up the Nerf darts in the yard. And then suddenly they do a great disappearing disappearing act. But, um, but she, uh, I was shooting baskets in, in, in our driveway and she comes around the garage with a determined look on her face with her fierce Daphne look on her face. And she says, where are you, Simon? You're not innocent. <laughs> like in her head, in her little four-year-old head, that that was that was the zinger of zingers. Um, I mean, she, night, she doesn't know how right she is. That's right. That's right. The other night, she had crawled into bed with us um, after kind of getting up with, with a nightmare, or needed something to, needed to drink, or go to the bathroom, or whatever, and just decided to crawl in bed with mommy and daddy. And we had just just turned out the light. And, um, and she decided it was time to talk to us. And she asked me a question and I, I asked her something else. And she said to me, never mind, we'll talk about it in the morning, huh. <laughs> which coming from a four-year-old is, yeah. is great. But the one Daphne quote that we've been quoting nonstop is uh, from several weeks ago now, maybe a month ago two months ago. Um, she sometimes on Friday nights or Saturday nights, she want, wants to do something special, which is camp out in her brother's room by camp out. We mean like throw a sleeping bag on the floor and sleep on the floor. Mm-hmm. And so she had done that. And of course, like you put four kids in one room and you tell them to turn the, light, the lights and you tell them to go to sleep. And like, you're going to get 90 minutes of like chaos and conflict. Right. Oh, and, yeah. uh, and at one point we heard her scream, this is from upstairs in our bedroom. We heard her scream. That's it. I'm done. <laughs> Slam door and stomp as powerfully and theatrically as little four-year-old girl feet can stamp up the steps <laughs> to her room. And uh, this is where we'd need like the, um, the Ron Howard voiceover. She wasn't. <laughs> Ten minutes later, she right. slunk back down. <laughs> after after that, uh, that bold proclamation. That's it. I'm done. Yeah. Fantastic. So now that is that's the stand in for any any time um, we're frustrated with something we're doing and we just want to want to move on. I'll be like, "That's it. I'm done." <laughs> so that's what's going on here. Uh, shall we move on to the gospel? Let's do it. Today's, do you want me to read it? All right. The uh, the reading for uh, for Sunday um, 
is John 15, verses 1 through 11. Now, Sunday, um, in many traditions, including ours, in uh, the Anglican tradition, the sixth Sunday of Easter is Rogation Sunday. Christopher, do you have that gospel reading up? Would you like to read it, or would you like me to read it, Christopher? I'm sorry, I, uh, you, your audio went out for me. Um, All right, I, I don't know I, if it's a connection uh, I issue. I will read the gospel, but uh, just continue if if there's uh, no big question All you're right. asking. All right, I will read uh, John 15 verses 1 through 11. I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean, because of the fruit that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. But this is my but this by this my father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Here ends the lesson. Mm. Yeah, and I'll offer uh, thoughts first today. We, by way of introduction, I'd love to talk just a little bit about how we use scripture and how we try to develop what we call a biblical theology. And uh, what a biblical theology is, is it P is reading the whole of scripture and, and looking at the Bible, not as a place to mine. It's not a quarry that we pull things out of principles for life. It's, it's not something that we say, well, what does the Bible say about parenting or marriage or money? But in, in fact, the Bible is is God's word that is trying to say something mu much more complete to us. That God has revealed himself to us in a very clear and specific way. Uh, that this is God's revelation of himself to us. That God is a God who self-discloses. And this is, this is what he has uh, disclosed to us about himself, is, is scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And so we want to build a biblical theology using each author to kind of build uh, this, this greater work outside of it that, that we use John and, and, and Mark and, and John Mark and, uh, who are the same person, um, and, and Paul and Peter and, <laughs> and all these authors to, to build a, a, a robust theology. And as we do that, 
we we could we could have some bigger takeaways about uh, we use scripture to interpret scripture and and to build this big picture that that is is only uh, when you look at one part of it uh, it's it's like a a mosaic where you want to back up and see it as part of the whole and so at, we are called to be disciples and as we piece together a biblical theology of discipleship it's kind of three basic things uh, we want to be with Jesus, we want to be like Jesus, and we want to fish for people. And I, I keep ta- raising topics for future podcasts, but what what do, I don't like how many churches fail to emphasize all three. The one that concerns me a great deal is fishing for people, that we see discipleship as sitting at Jesus' feet and just absorbing him and drinking in his truth. When, when Jesus... The most basic call to discipleship includes going out and, and making disciples to fish for people. And and other churches can kind of become one note as far as being moralistic, uh, either either in kind of sexual purity or um, purity in, in kind of more conservative forms or in in uh, social justice. Uh, if, if churches, uh, if they become one note, maybe on the progressive side um, or just this whole be with him, they, uh, churches can emphasize that in, in just emphasizing the sacraments apart from kind of the, the whole word of God. So uh, in John, uh, the, the author, John, uh, John the Evangelist, describes the Christian life as a walk through the world illumined by the light of his presence. Jesus says, he, he who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And John uses a number of terms to describe this journey, uh, one of which is from today. He says, abide in me. Uh, other places say, talk about following Jesus, working, keeping his commandments, uh, conquering the world. And so th- this passage talks about abiding in Christ, which is the most basic mode of, of Christian existence and discipleship. Uh, but Jesus is the true vine, and each of us as believers are a branch in him. And this is directly tied to. I emphasize we should have a, a we should have Haber Bros Bingo where every time I talk about understanding scripture in context, you, you get you cover up a space. Uh, <laughs> this this is directly related to what comes before it about the promise of the Holy Spirit. Jesus promises the Holy Spirit, and and that that connection to Jesus, abiding in Christ is is a function of the Spirit being in us. And then, in fact, we experience Christ through the Holy Spirit who indwells with us and makes us share in the life of, of our Lord. And so just like the sap that goes through a tree and, and gives sustenance to each of the branches and leaves, uh, that we, we receive life from Jesus by abiding in him. By, and uh, we see what the fruit is, that, that fruit is both ethical, uh, our love for each other, and, it, and it's also missional. It's not two kinds of fruit, but one kind of fruit. But the world sees our love for each other, and this is a witness to the world. And so uh, there are two kind of big conclusions I want to draw from this. And and the, the first is, is to not make this be a moralistic text. That Christianity is not a moralistic faith. That this is not a... A, te- a text that exhorts us 
to clean living or good living. There are plenty of texts elsewhere that do that. But but if, if we take this text at, at, at face value, what does it say about our fruit, Kirk? Where does it come from? What's its source? Um, well, he says in verse 14, ye are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. I'm, I'm just, I'm... You're joking. I'm Thank you. I'm being difficult. <laughs> Go ahead. I don't mean to derail you. Oh, it's uh, it's it's a uh, connection to Jesus. It's connection to the vine. It's the vine yep. that, that that gives us these these this fruit of good works. So th- there may be pastors who will uh, enter the pulpit this Sunday or other Sundays and and preach a moralistic uh, striving to be part of the vine, be be worthy of of the vine, and that's not at all what this is saying. Because those two are you're saying focusing on. Verses like uh, verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Well, we need to take those at, 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 at face value and, and keep his commandments. Absolutely. But the fruit comes from connection to the vine. If you, if you, are, not connect, if right. you are not already connected to the vine, what has happened to you? You have been pruned. You're, you're not on the vine anymore. <laughs> and so I think it's an important thing is just to use the text well, to not use fear or manipulation uh as if you're a, a christian leader and and if you're if you're in the body abide in christ and and follow his commandments and and jesus calls you his friend this is a wonderful wonderful blessing um i i said there are only two things i guess this would be one a this is one b i guess uh the when the old testament talks about the vine it's talking about israel and of course jesus is pro- talking a little bit here there, there's is, is supersession isn't a heresy there's a a non-orthodox doctrine called supersessionism that, that we don't want to go into but but that but that jesus is the fulfillment of of israel that uh there are all these old testament imageries about the vine being israel and jesus is teaching about the true vine being con- connection with him he is the way the truth and the life Psalm 80 uh, is one example of these Old Testament. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. And that this pruning that, that God does, it's loving. Um, and Kirk, I'm sure you'll talk about this imagery and, and how it's healthy and it's good uh, for, you know, that, that allows vines to flourish even more. Um, that he, God prunes so that each branch will be even more fruitful. And so this is the second takeaway is that... Uh, there is more fruit at the end of the pruning, but that the pruning process is faithful. And I think of one passage and one beautiful hymn that's written from that passage, and that's First uh, Peter chapter four, verses twelve and thirteen, where, where Peter says, uh, "He says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice." And be glad when his glory is revealed. And that reminds me of this beautiful hymn. I love it. How firm a foundation. The, the fourth verse of it. And it's an interesting hymn in that the first verse is it's in quotation marks as it's God's. Uh, how firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his mighty, uh, almighty word. What more can he say than to you he has said to you whom to for refuge to Jesus have fled 
And then the, the next four verses are these promises from Scripture to us, which is interesting that we, that we speak God's promises using I, I, I. Uh, even though we are not God, we are, we are singing God's promises. And so verse 4 goes like this. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace, all sufficient, shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. This, this process of refining is, is a painful one. Um, flames shall not ultimately hurt us, uh, th- but this process of refining is, is to get rid of the, the dross, the, 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 not garbage. What would, what would be a synonym for dross? Like, um, the, the stuff that isn't as pure that kind of drops away in the refining process, the, the less pure, the imp- yeah. impurities kind of fall away. Um, right. and the, and the, and the gold is refined and, and, uh, and, of course, my grace, all sufficient, shall be thy supply. Is a quote from, uh, is it Second Corinthians, where Paul talks about um, three times he asked for a thorn from his side to be removed. He said to, he went to God. We don't know what this is, this thorn, but he's like God. Like there's a thing in my life that's that's almost killing me. It's driving me crazy. Uh, and God said to him, "I'm not going to remove this thorn, but my grace is going to be enough for you." So I'm, I'm going to use my time to talk about Peter and Paul instead of John. I'm just kidding. What are your thoughts? <laughs> no, I, I'm trying. I'm trying to, to to illustrate. Yeah, no, that's this, great, Christopher. The sense of a yeah. biblical theology um, of, of it's inter- all this. This passage is interesting. You and I, you and I grew up um, in uh, in the Methodist Church, um, and and uh, we you could say we grew up kind of in in evangelicalism. Certainly, a lot of the kind of the literature and um, vacation Bible schools um, were kind of soaked in. Kind of evangelical culture and evangelical intuitions, and uh, the metaphor of fruit and producing fruit is really common in American evangelicalism, and it's kind of the go-to metaphor in terms of examining your your Christian life, your walk, as evangelicals say. And um, and I, I don't I don't I'm not qualified to say whether that metaphor is abused or not, um, but I think it's it's used so much that it, that it. It kind of loses some of its meaning. It's interesting. Um, how does you ask? How does a plant produce fruit? And um, I'm a sporadic gardener. There are some springs and summers where I'm really excited about what I'm planting, and and other summers where I've kind of dropped the ball on that. But um, the a plant produces fruit when it is properly watered, uh, properly tended, properly protected um, from from rabbits and deer and other things. And, um, and it's not produced, it doesn't produce fruit by trying or being told to produce fruit, um, but it produces fruit by being what it is created and then by being properly cared for. And so if, if in, in this metaphor of producing fruit, um, if we are the vine and the fruit is the work of the spirit and evidence of, of, of holiness in Christian living, um, uh, we will produce that fruit of Christian living, that holiness, those marks of holiness, um, less by a plant never produced a tomato by grunting. There it is. There's a tomato. Uh, but it is, it produces the tomato out of its own nature and the conditions being right. Um, sun, rain, soil, 
fertilization, protection from predators, all those things. The conditions are right for it to produce fruit. And as we see here that it is properly pruned. Um, uh, pruning is interesting. Uh, Christopher, I've talked to you about this. I, um, I, did, I didn't grow up kind of taking ten, watching our dad tend trees. We didn't kind of have those kinds of properties. And so when I've seen um, trees being pruned, it, it looks shocking. It looks like it makes me think of like my arm being cut off or something. And that's not it at all for a plant, uh, is it? Uh, and plants love pruning. And, and if you go into a forest and you see vines or plants that are not pruned at all, they go willy-nilly in any direction. And oftentimes the fruit they produce is small and bitter or stunted because it's in the shade, it's in the wrong spot. Uh, it's interesting, my in-laws, um, they run a bed and breakfast I'm in rural Western Pennsylvania. It's a beautiful piece of property. And there was a, um, there were Concord grapes, a Concord grape vineyard that they didn't know about when they purchased the property. And it had, uh, the, the forest had kind of grown over and reclaimed all of that. And my father-in-law, who has the right equipment and is very handy and has the will and delight to do it, went in there with his Kubota and cleared all that out. And, um, and they produced many jars of, of jam, and I think even a couple of bottles of you know, their own vintage of wine. Um, uh, but it could have been much more had the vineyard been properly tended to by previous owners. And so um, this is where I think we, uh, if, we, if we approach the fruit metaphor properly, we can avoid um, kind of a legalism. Or a, I, I've heard there are certain pockets of evangelicalism where... Uh, Pastors are talked about as fruit inspectors. Have you run into this, Christopher? I have not encountered this. <laughs> so um, their job is to kind of approach the flock and uh, do some fruit examination, some fruit inspection. That is, kind of look at their life and search for evidence of holiness. And 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 I think that way of approaching it can run into what you addressed, which is um, a sort of legalism where you're trying to bear fruit. And um, this is clearly... Uh, we produce fruit when we're um, when we're grafted onto the true vine, and so I, I think I'm in complete agreement with you on that. This is a lovely passage. This all these passages from John, um, these these upper room texts are just lovely, and um, these are fairly dense too. Have you noticed this, Christopher? I, I I think I remember being a teenager and even up into my twenties, kind of my eyes glazing over um, in John 14, 15, mm. 16. 17. Um, there's a lot going on here, right? There's Christology, there's ecclesiology. That's, I mean, a word for how, well, what it means to be the church, to be God's body. Um, and that's part of what's going on here, right? The, the metaphor of vine and branches, how are we grafted onto God and what that looks like and what that produces in us. Um, there's a lot going on, a, a lot of fleshing out of the relationship between uh, the members of the Trinity, the members of the Trinity and us, um, uh, Christians with each other, and uh, I, I think I think part of the fruit of the spirit is um, these uh, these passages, uh, John chapter fifteen, for example, um, last week, uh, John fourteen, um, becoming clearer and uh, warming the heart more and more. Whereas previously they were, I, I know at least to me, um, uh, dense and and things and passages that caused me to kind of drift off. Does that have you found that to be the case at all? Do you do you remember these reading these younger and finding them kind of impenetrable thickets? 
Yeah, I think so. It's, especially this high priestly prayer in John 17. I remember kind of being like, oh, like, um, like <laughs> it's, it's kind of repetitive and, you know, um, and yeah, it can, it can be uh, pretty dense and intense. This, uh, I, I and you and me and like, there's just a lot of like Jesus praying to the father, yeah. I and them and you and me that they may become, yeah, there's. It, it, it can be pretty dense, um, but, but I, all this is dense because it's, I mean, it is the most dense part of Jesus' teaching in, in all the scriptures, you know, in, in yeah. you know, it's, it's not descriptive of, oh, well, Jesus went to this village and then there's not much description. It's just Jesus teaching many things, you know. So, yeah, very dense. Yeah. Yep. I have, I have one final thought on this. Um, and before I do that, I just want to ask you, uh, you have, do you have any more observations on this before I wrap it up? So, um we, you, you and I, Christopher, just our personalities, and also we, the show, um, kind of tend to do a lot of doctrine. And I know there's a lot of American Christianity um, uh, that thinks that uh, I don't know how they would put this. I want to be charitable. Um, that uh, that a focus on on doctrine um, kind of detracts from the the fact that Christianity is a relationship in its very nature. And um, I think it's odd to pit the two against each other, to pit mm -hmm. um, uh, the, the fact that Christianity is uh, a relationship with our Lord and Savior and that we should seek to learn more ab about what he has revealed to us. Um, Michael Horton, a theologian whom you and I both uh, really appreciate and, uh, and revere, um, has made this illustration um, that, uh, that if someone asked you about your wife, uh, tell me about your wife, I've never met her, you'd never say, Oh, 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 it's, 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 I just know how I feel about her. I don't, I don't, I don't need to go into details. It's not important to know about her attributes, right. but what color are, are her eyes? I, I, I just know how, I just know that I love her. I know I have a deep relationship with her. Well, where did she grow up? I just, I did. That's not important. Right. Um, when you love someone, um, you seek to know all about them and you're fascinated by all the stories they have to tell. Um, about where they came from, how they were formed, um, their crush in sixth grade, the home run they hit in eighth grade, all those things. You eat all that stuff up. And I think in the Christian life, um, that's what doctrine is. <laughs> that's what our Lord has revealed about himself to us. And you seek to know more about the one you love, right? That just seems natural to me. So um, as, as I've grown, I these passages, which are thick with doctrine, John 15, John 14, John 17. Um, increasingly, I see them less as impenetrable thickets and more as lovely self-revelation of our Lord to us. Well, amen. Well, amen. But, but oh, I mean, yeah. you asked me before if I wanted to add anything. I said no, but now now I do. <laughs> uh, yeah, just about, about doctrine and, and the importance of doctrine. Uh, I, I'm absolutely with you, uh, and well, gosh, I'm kind of buying time because I totally forgot what I was going to say. I had something um, really, 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 I, I assure you it was good that, that I was going to share um, about the value of doctrine. And I'm uh, and it's just it's just not coming to me. So I'm just going to interrupt you at some point uh, later in the show when it does deal. Listeners, uh, what you need to know is in other realms of Christopher's life, he has this uh, humorous reputation as the great interrupter. So you'll get to experience it the moment he remembers this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. All right, let's go to our next segment, theology.
All right, our theology segment uh, today is um, focusing on Rogation Sunday. And um, uh, many of you may have no idea what Rogation is, and uh, neither did I until about uh, 18 years ago. Oh, um, hey. Rogation hey, Day. Hey, hey. I remember. Is it? Do you have it? I remembered, yeah. yeah. Nice. Yeah. Um, and and uh, it has to do with last week's passage. Um, and, and so the importance of doctrine in, in relationship with God uh, is this. And um, at the beginning of last week's passage, Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. And I, I brought up this, this idea of kind of false uh, platitudinous comfort versus legit comfort. Comfort that is, doesn't just mean well, but actually calms our anxieties and, and i think the difference is 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 people who come to you in your time of trial and have this superficial platitude platitudinous just like oh everything's going to be okay and, and that could be irritating because we're like no it's not <laughs> you don't or we were just like you're not like how would you know that and when jesus says it it's different because he is going to do that work for us and he knows um and he has the authority to say these things um that he is going to do the work um, that brings us greatest comfort and brings us peace with the Father. And so I say this, is that um, good doctrine uh, gives us comfort in the relationship, that intimacy with God uh, comes from like knowing him fully and knowing what his promises are, that uh, if, if uh, how else would we find peace in God, this peace that passes all understanding without kind of knowing um, what his promises are in the midst of our deepest trials. Uh, our deepest trials evidence uh, of of some secret sin in our life, like uh, people in the prosperity gospel movement would say, uh, well, that's that's no comfort to us. So uh, good doctrine, um, in fact, uh, just gives tremendous strength and security, uh, something that you can really, really believe in, um, something you can trust in fully. Uh, and, and we need that. We need a foundation. So um, back to rogation. Yes. Well, I'll just say this as well. I th um, one of the the images that um, kind of people who who get impatient with uh, doctrine and will say is, uh, well, that's that's there's head knowledge and there's heart knowledge, and uh, Christianity is a relationship with the heart. Um, and uh, and I, I think of Mary um, in Luke's gospel. Um, uh, she, uh, we, we read the passage of uh, the, um, the birth of our Lord and the shepherds um, and the shepherds leave. And we read that Mary treasured all these things in her heart. Um, uh, we don't just uh, experience feelings in our heart, um, but, our, but, our, but our hearts, our affections are formed by events and actual content. Um, and so the Bible, the, the, the content of the Bible and, and the content of the church's teachings um, are processed by our hearts and produce um, greater affection for our Lord, I think. So that, that to me, is an odd thing to pit um, one against the mm -hmm. other, to pit, to pit knowledge against the heart. Um, that, that doesn't necessarily, I, I don't think we should do that. I think that's a poor metaphor for the Christian life and how we read as Christians and how we pray as Christians. So I'll just say that. All right, rogation. Rogation. What is rogation? Um, Rogation, Rogation Sunday is um, in uh, more historic uh, churches. Rogation Sunday is the sixth Sunday of Easter. Um, uh, next Sunday, most uh, churches translate Ascension 
which will happen next Thursday, a week from today. They'll translate it to Sunday, and then the Sunday after that will be Ascension, um, will be uh, will be uh, Pentecost, and then Trinity. And what I said was probably confusing because I said it all. Uh, I started my way through it. So let's just talk about just rogation right now. Um, rogation is this ancient idea. Um, we, it goes back to the fifth century AD um, when uh, when a fifth century archbishop. Um, instituted what are called rogation days, and uh, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday before Ascension. Ascension always occurs on a Thursday. Um, and he proclaimed these days of fasting and procession of prayer around freshly sprouting fields, um, asking for God's um, uh, God's provision um, as crops were being planted and growing. Um, the Latin rogare means to ask. And uh, at that time, the gospel for the Sunday was John 16, um, ask and ye shall receive. Um, and this is this has come to be sort of a spring planting holiday. Um, we in in pre-industrial age, days, most people, um, their lives revolved around planting and the agricultural cycle. And so planting was kind of a big deal in the spring for us. Um, it's kind of a smaller thing, tending our yard. Um, uh, but uh, but in, in England, um, the church would, in this goofy phrase, quote, beat the bounds. Um, you'd process around the parish borders. Um, the whole parish, you'd, uh, you'd carry crosses. The choir would be singing crosses and flags. Um, and there were strange traditions <laughs> um, at landmarks. Um, uh, sometimes kids would be thrown into lakes or asked to climb huge trees. <laughs> And the, the idea behind this was um, was that so when you would do it later as an adult, you'd say, oh, yes, this is where when I was a kid, uh, I had to climb this tree or I had to dive into this lake. Um, um, but the, the evolution, it's evolved into um, a respect and a celebration for the goodness of God's creation, for the rhythm of the agricultural cycle, for the renewal of spring, and, uh, and for prayers for all of that. Um, for prayers, so we, we're largely removed from the agricultural cycle, and yet we're all highly dependent upon it. And I think we're very much reminded about this now in America when um, some of us are starting to see empty meat shelves and meat shortages and rising meat prices. And though the, all of this is invisible, these are real people that are doing this who are still experiencing the cycle of spring planting and summer tending and fall harvesting and um, and hoping that it'll all last through the winter and repeating the cycle. And um, in the first uh, commandment, <laughs> the first thing that uh, that Adam and Eve uh, were, were given to do was to tend the garden, right? So there's something natural, godly, and Edenic about this cycle. And uh, I've come to love this Sunday. Um, we sing hymns like, uh, For the Beauty of the Earth, and This is My Father's World, Um we plow the fields and scatter. And uh, and uh, so George Herbert, uh, a poet that I love, a 17th century English vicar and a poet, um, said there are four reasons that uh, Christians should observe Rogation Sunday in the Rogation days. Number one, a blessing by God for the fruits of the field. And that makes total sense. We should all, we should all be praying, praying this. Um, number two, justice. Prayer for justice, um, when you mark the bounds of the parish, that uh, God's justice would prevail uh, in, in your parish. And, and for us as 
20th century Christians where not everyone in your parish attends the same church, right? Um, within our church, that the justice would, God's justice would reign in our church and the people that live there, but also in our towns, I think. Um, number three, that charity would prevail as well. Um, so those amongst who we live and walk and work with, um, that our differences would be reconciled and we would live in love and charity. And then four, mercy. Um, as you, if you walk around your neighborhood, you'll see the poor and um, that uh, there be a, a liberal distribution of goods um, where there ought to be. So that's Rogation Sunday. Um, if you're attending church, um, hopefully you'll get to uh, not attending or virtually attending, whatever. Hopefully you'll get to sing For the Beauty of the Earth. And if you don't, uh, hum it on your own this week. Christopher, I monologued and I'm really sorry for that. <laughs> your thoughts on Rogation? I have no further thoughts. It's it's good. It's beautiful. It's interesting how we are separated from from agriculture as in, in most meaningful ways. You know, not many of us are farmers, but um, to remember, uh, you know, so so rogation comes from the Latin word to ask, and so to it, we're reminded of a reliance. Uh, we we ask for God's blessings on all the crops and and all we're reliant on on rain and and uh safety from storms that could come out uh, a hailstorm could come and take out an entire crop and and just how much we rely on on the lord for everything i think uh maybe empty meat shelves and and things like this uh remind us of of how we are not in control but um even more so in times of plenty i think rogation days remind us of of just how god provides for us Amen. Well said. Let's move on to culture. All right, Christopher, you have been watching Westerns. I have. Um, I can't say exactly why. I think maybe it has something to do with uh, one of the, uh, one of my favorite podcasts uh, and kind of a, a spinoff, not a spinoff, but a related one. Uh, there's a, a new website, Sunny Bunch Runs, called the uh, rebellermedia.com. I guess that's the website. It's called Rebeller, and uh, it's it advocates and celebrates outlaw what it calls outlaw cinema. And they recently did a, a week on tombstone. And so that's probably, uh, I haven't watched all that many Westerns and many of them that I have watched were so long ago. They're in my, they're in the nineties and I barely remember them. So I, I've, uh, I, I watched tombstone. 
kind of the, the, the modern classic. And I watched Open Range. I watched The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Um, within the last couple months, I watched No Country for Old Men. And I also watched uh, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. And I came back to the, the HBO show Deadwood. Uh, I've kind of never really gotten into it, but like <laughs> I know it's so well regarded that uh, so often I'm like, well, I'll just try, maybe I'll try it again. Maybe I was just in a bad mood when I watched it. So yeah, I've been indulging in, in Westerns and, and very much enjoying, enjoying it. And we were talking before the show about how what's refreshing and great about movies like Tombstone or Open Range is the, the lack of moral ambiguity. Obviously, nuance and moral ambiguity can be great in some movies, in, in movies where... Because uh, life is like that. There, it's not always clear what the right thing to do is. And, and life is complicated. But in some of these uh, older-style, more classic Westerns, uh, what they got right is it's clear who's wearing the black hats and who's wearing the white hats and, and about good um, triumphing over evil and and uh one of the spectacular successes of the movie the original movie star wars the 1979 movie was that it came at the end of a kind of a depressing decade we had stagflation we had gas shortages uh we had a, a high crime in cities uh the 70s things were not good and and the art of the 70s reflected that uh the the sci-fi was all morally ambiguous and and the music of sci-fi was all uh, very down and strange. And here we, uh, Star, Star Wars has this very clear good guys versus bad guys. And John Williams score, not, you know, kind of this artsy kind of depressing techno uh, music. But, but uh, there's something uh, wonderful and refreshing that happened with Star Wars. And I think it's what, what uh, kind of these more classic Westerns get at. Yeah, um, I I was sent down a YouTube rabbit hole recently. Um, uh, I saw someone uh, post something about Thundercats, which is an 80s cartoon. Um, and so I went and I typed into YouTube. I couldn't remember, am I thinking of Thundercats or am I thinking of Voltron? And to disambiguate, disambiguate the two, I went into YouTube. And I watched the Thundercats. Uh, intro, and then I watched the Voltron intro, and YouTube is so clever at daisy chaining you along with their suggestions. And I watched He Man, and Transformers, and GI Joe, and it's uh, it's just so clear that um, there are cosmic moral battles in which uh, good men must pick up their swords or their guns or their uh, four part intergalactic fighting cats to become one unit with a flaming sword like Voltron or whatever and uh, and uh, and tackle evil. And I think that was kind of morally formative uh, for for me, for us, um, for a whole generation that grew up with that. I, after watching a He-Man episode, I would go into the backyard and I would stomp around and I would pretend to hold up a sword in the air and scream, I have the power! And, um, and I was looking for uh, pretend bad guys to uh, vanquish. And it's interesting listening to some of my millennial colleagues. This isn't making, I'm not doing intergenerational war on this con on this podcast, but if you grew up with kind of cartoons from the nineties, it's all much smaller scale. 
Um, there are no cosmic battles. And I, I wonder what kind of moral formation is happening there. I wonder if after watching a uh, SpongeBob or a Ren and Stimpy, you went out to the backyard um, with cosmic feelings of good <laughs> and evil stirring in the breast, <laughs> wanting to sally forth and slay the dragon. I, I kind of doubt it. Um, but you're right. That is kind of the virtue of Westerns is amidst the stark ant landscape, which is sort of pre-law, right? Um, there's not really a good rule of law. Um, the bad guys can get to reign free, and it's the the, the famous Edmund Burke quote that's overquoted. But but it's but there's a kernel of truth to it that's worth remembering. Um, evil can only flourish when when good men do nothing, right? That's always what you see in the Western, right? So evil at the beginning, you've got uh, you've got a problem, you've got a source of evil, you've got the black hat, and someone's got to do something, right? The townspeople are kind of held hostage by this gang or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. And someone's got to step up. And uh, and I know in young boys, I mean that was that was stirring. Um, you and you and I were, uh, were were talking about Tombstone versus Wyatt Earp. They both tell the same story, right? Um, but uh, who, who uh, Doc Holliday is played by um, Val Kilmer, right in Tombstone. Yep. Um, and who plays who plays Doc Holliday in Wyatt Earp? Do you remember? I don't remember. I'm I don't mean to put e you on the spot. I am efforting. Yeah, um, but Val Kilmer. So what I remember, you've seen it recently. I haven't. Den what I remember Dennis is Quaid. Val Kilmer. Is, uh, Dennis Quaid. Dennis Quaid. Yes, they were so different. So. Uh, Val Kilmer plays him with this genteel accent, and uh, you and I were talking. I don't know—is it Virginian? Is it vaguely British? But it's not kind of your standard Western cowboy, right? It's more genteel. Why, Wyatt? That's quality. Uh, <laughs> I, quality content. I, I, I could use more of this. Anyhow, actually, I could use more Kirk as Doc Holliday. Why, why, Wyatt, <laughs> it appears that I have tuberculosis. I do not have long to live. And Very I don't nice. remember much more of the plot, so I've run out of things to say. Um, You also commented something funny. He's he's constantly sweating. <laughs> yeah. I don't remember Dennis Quaid being so sweaty. Yeah. But um, uh, what, what, which, any other takeaways from uh, Tombstone? Uh. What an amazing cast! I mean, that's that's a movie where Kurt Russell is just. I, I've I've really grown to appreciate Kurt Russell as, as an actor, and he's so good. And his voice recently is is so good. He, he's he's the narrator in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, he's got a great voice. He's, he's just got a great screen presence. Um, uh, what's uh, who's the classic uh, Coors and original yellow can? Um, what's what's Sam, Sam Elliott plays his brother. Uh, yep. Just an amazing, amazing cast. But I'm looking at the cast of of Wyatt Earp, and and it's equally impressive. We have Gene Hackman and and uh, Jim Caviezel, <laughs> uh, Bill Herman, uh, Catherine O'Hara. Uh, amazing, uh, amazing cast. Yeah, Tia Leone was in that. Yes, Tia Leone. <laughs> people you wouldn't expect. Yeah, Mark Harmon. Yeah, that was it. Was Bill Pullman was in Tom that? Tom Sizemore, yeah. yeah. That was that was all really good. Um, the one you haven't mentioned, which was the most formative Western for me, Adam Baldwin too. No I love Adam Baldwin. Not 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 a Baldwin brother, but different Baldwin. Yeah. 
Um, you and I both read this, I think, in the same mm. course. Uh, Larry McMurtry's Lonesome mm. Dove. Um, and that is uh, that is just this sprawling what twelve hundred page epic, yeah. and and the movie is rarely as good as the book, except <laughs> Lonesome Dove uh, on the screen was almost as good as the book, uh, and it was super faithful as well. That's what I appreciated. Mm-hmm. Um, it um, that that was Robert Duvall, Diane Lane, uh, Tommy Lee Jones played Woodrow Call. Oh my gosh, yeah. that was so good. Chris Cooper was in that. Oh, Angelica Houston was in that too. Yeah, so that that was great as well. Now that's that. Um, that I would you say that falls into the clear black hat, white hat, a morally unambiguous universe. I would say less. I think I, I think that's a less yeah. cosmic scale, and it's more of a human right, drama. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, it, and, I mean, what is interesting that I, I remember this discussion that we had in high school is, is you pointing out, because um, when you were a junior, uh, you read this for school and you were so into it that I, I read it uh, as an eighth grader, I would have been. And, <laughs> um, and then I read it again as a junior. Uh, you pointed out, uh, you know, the compelling character on screen is Robert Duvall playing, uh, Augustus, August, yeah, Gus, Augustus McRae, and yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and he's just he's he's very compelling character. He's charismatic. You love him, but uh, I remember charming Kirk, the young literary. Uh, you know, as an eighth grader, uh, I, I was just like, this this is my guy. This is he's charming in every way. And Captain Call, um, this this guy who he's more buttoned up. Jones plays. Very buttoned up, yeah, and, and just the, the the characterization is so good. It's interesting how how Gus just uh, how, how Captain Call is is kind of envious of some of Gus's innate abilities, where Captain Call is a hard worker. And but one one of the things you pointed out is is how Duvall is a very static character, or, or Gustus McRae, where Tommy Lee Jones, Captain Call, is is kind of the interesting character, where where the human drama is really about him, where the, this more buttoned up, yes, uh, kind of less interesting in some ways character he's the one um that that it's a the, the story is really about in, in his journey and he's the character who changes and learns and and it's it's it, it won a, a pulitzer prize i believe uh the book yeah well yeah so augustus mccray was a charming young rascal in his 20s we find out and he's now a a, a charming 50 something scoundrel um and that's that, right? There's no kind of character arc. And so he's right. charming, but he right. kind of, you can tell he kind of leaves women in his wake a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and he continues to do that throughout the drama. Where uh, Woodrow, Woodrow Call had one grand love, um, and it kind of defined him. And he continues to mourn that. He's not good around women. He's awkward. He really envies uh, Augustus McRae for for how, how charming and smooth he is um, with women. Um, but but also with Woodrow Call, right? He has this unacknowledged son, right? Mm. Unacknowledged son to a prostitute, is that correct? And the son doesn't know it, but uh, Woodrow Call, the one time you see him kind of flip out and violently kill a guy, is when his son is threatened. Mm. Do you do you recall that? It's about I don't two thirds through. 
Um, and so he kind of, he, he, he sort of acknowledges that he, he does have the capacity for love and self-sacrifice mm-hmm. and, um, it doesn't have to be forever defined by his past. And yeah, that's right. You're, you're bringing that all back to me. I had forgotten all of that stuff. Maybe um, it's time for me to reread there's it. A sp- yeah. There's a spaciousness of the West as a canvas that allows you to tell um, so many different kinds of stories. And I think that's probably one of the things that's attracted storytellers as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you can tell kind of white hat, black hat stories or more, um, more human dramas that, that, that feel large when they're painted. I mean, the whole, the whole point, the whole trajectory of Lonesome Dove is a cattle drive from the Rio Grande up to the Canadian border in Montana, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's literally crossing the entire United States. Mm-hmm. So um, it's, it's large and sweeping in that way. And the third, the third member of their troop, Jake Spoon, remember Jake Spoon? So he's on the other end. There's absolutely not only is there no moral development in him, he gets uh, he gets uh, hung in kind of a like a half legal, not half legal. He gets hung um, by was it marshals, just kind of in the wilderness who've been chasing him. Um, he kind of has gambling debts and resentments that he's been he's been kind of on the run. You, you're not remembering the Jake Spoon, the third character. Not as not as much. Yeah. Again, this is something yeah, I need so to go have, back to. Yeah. Yeah. So you have kind of three people. You have you have a character who is who's developing, who has uh, is morally growing. There's moral growth. Woodrow Call. You have Augustus McRae, who's who through sheer force of charm doesn't change a whole lot, but but continues to live. And then you have um, you have a character who's moral development is kind of a devolution. Um, he gets his just desserts, I guess. Um, you can only run away from gambling debts and, uh, and spited women for so long before kind of something catches up to you. So um, we've gone over an hour. I think we should wrap. Any final thoughts before we wrap in prayer? Well, I, I'm suddenly remembering other Westerns that I watched uh, this year, just weeks before I started the most recent trend. So I guess it's been a a lengthier uh, thing of me watching Westerns. I watched Tarantino has, has really gotten into Westerns and, and did um, both the hateful eight and uh, Django unchained. Uh, and I watched is the hateful eight worth watching. I watched the first five minutes and shut it off. Um, I don't know. I, I watched the, the, so Tarantino can become so, enamored of himself and loves to to just uh draw out scenes and can draw out movies in in ways that what he did with netflix is he turned a long movie into a miniseries and i actually watched the miniseries version of it and it's fine it's good it's it's definitely a film made by a talented filmmaker but if i i would not say it's something you have to see um but then uh, the Coen brothers also did uh, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs on Netflix. And that that's, movie is a little bit different in that it's a series of vignettes. It's not a coherent beginning-to-end movie. It's, it's I think the longest one is maybe 20, 25 minutes. It's maybe five or six mini-movies. Uh, and I watched it the first time, and it was good. Uh, but it held up really well. Watching it a second time, I, I, I liked it a lot. And, and again, because partly because like the, the West is a, a great canvas 
to tell all sorts of stories. Yeah, I think I only made it about 45 minutes into that movie. That's that's the problem with Netflix. Netflix in theory is great, but in reality you watch 40 minutes of about a dozen <laughs> things instead of six good things. Sure. So All right. Um awesome. Well, you've uh, you've certainly put some things on my list for uh to watch this week, so would you like to close in prayer? Let's do it. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Oh God, you have prepared for those who love you such good things as surpass our understanding. Pour into our hearts such love towards you that we, loving you in all things and above all things, may obtain your promises, which exceed all that we can desire. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. O God, the source of all holy desires, all good counsels, and all just works, give to your servants that peace which the world cannot give, that our hearts may be set to obey your commandments, that we, being defended from the fear of our enemies, may pass our time in rest and quietness through the merits of Jesus Christ our Savior. Amen. Lighten our darkness, we beseech you, O Lord, and by your great mercy, defend us from all perils and dangers of this night, for the love of your only Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Amen. Next, Next week. week.